If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 475, Southward Ho, part 4. It wasn't really until 1940 that war came directly to Micronesia. Its indirect effects had been felt for years by that point, however. Japan had been involved in conflict for three years by this time on the Asian mainland, as part of the long slog of the so-called China Incident, but outside of an uptick in patriotic exhortations and an extension of the draft to those Japanese civilians eligible for it, the China War's main impact on the area was the implementation of rationing protocols to military resources like gasoline and steel. In the China War, at least, Micronesia was very much a rear area, and so its mobilization was correspondingly limited. Starting in 1940, as tensions grew worse with the United States, this began to change, which actually leads us to an important point from the jump. Remember, one of the terms of Japan's League of Nations mandate in Micronesia was an agreement not to militarize the islands with defenses or bases. Both its mandate charter and the treaties signed by the interwar government banned the fortification of the area. In particular, the Five Power Treaty on Naval Arms Limitation, signed in 1922, proclaimed that, quote, No new fortifications or naval bases shall be established in the territories and possessions specified, that no measures shall be taken to increase the existing naval facilities for the repair and maintenance of naval forces, and that no increase shall be made to the coast defenses of the territories and possessions above specified. Now, the decision by the Nanyocho to close the islands outside of a few specific open ports to foreign shipping led immediately to suspicions in the U.S. Navy that Japan was violating both its mandate and treaty obligations and fortifying all of the Micronesian islands. In point of fact, from everything we can ascertain, this was not the case. The Nanyocho carefully followed the fortification ban, and while the Imperial Japanese Navy did have a liaison presence in the area, dedicated to surveying islands and making plans for their potential fortification in a crisis, those plans were very much just that, potential ones to be used only if the situation, in the eyes of the Japanese leadership, ever warranted it. 
The only real military improvements made by the Nanyocho were mixed-use ones, so to speak, like deepening the harbors in Palau and adding dry docks, things that civilians could use but which could also be converted for military use as needed. Still, the U.S. Navy leadership remained deeply concerned about the potential for Micronesia to be militarized, particularly given that such an action would cut off the American-controlled Philippines and threaten Guam, the two strongest American bastions in the West Pacific. ONI, the American Office of Naval Intelligence, spent a great deal of time and energy trying to ascertain whether a secret program of fortification was, in fact, going on. The most famous example was the undercover sojourn of Colonel Earl Ellis in the region from July of 1922 to May of 1923. Ellis was a U.S. Marine who had served in Asia for a time before eventually being attached to the Marine Corps' Intelligence Division. There, he sold his superiors on a plan to infiltrate Japanese Micronesia, and there make topographical and hydrographical maps of the region to be used if Japan and the U.S. ever went to war, and along the way, he'd keep a lookout for Japanese violations of the non-fortification agreements. Now, a few of you, I imagine, might be thinking, wait, isn't this man the worst possible spy imaginable? As the name Earl Ellis gives away, he's about as white as they come, after all, in a region dominated by people of Asian and Pacific Islander descent. Wouldn't he stand out like a sore thumb? Well, you're right, and that would be the biggest problem with this plan, except that it wasn't because Ellis was also a raging alcoholic who spent a good chunk of his sojourn in the region drunk out of his goddamn mind. He also kept his notes totally unciphered, so when the Nanyocho police started tailing him, which they did, of course, almost immediately, it did not take them long to figure out who he was, though they did not arrest him for fear of a diplomatic incident. Ultimately, Ellis's mission would end when he got so drunk in Palau, at one point babbling to his fellow bargoers about the mission he was on, that he then took ill, dying shortly thereafter from complications of alcohol poisoning. His terrain surveys did prove useful down the line, but they also made the Nanyocho leadership way more paranoid about American intention in the region and served to ratchet up mistrust even further. His death was also the source of constant rumors on the American side that he was poisoned by the Japanese, though from everything we can see this was not the case, his death was a result of his drinking issues. Stories like Ellis's drive home the extent of the mistrust even at this early stage between Japanese and American military leadership. After Ellis's little misadventure, the Imperial Japanese Navy became far more paranoid about American presence in the area, even in ostensibly civilian forms like scientists or merchants. All Americans, they assumed, were part of an advance guard reconning the area in preparation for a future attack. On the American side, that paranoia simply reinforced the assumption that Japan was violating its agreements and fortifying the area. Why else would they behave like they had something to hide? In reality, though, Japan did follow its mandate agreements, as we've said, at least until 1939. By 1939, Japan had withdrawn from the League of Nations and all of its arms limitation treaties. More importantly, Tensions with the United States were being inflamed by Japan's horrific acts in China and by the growing closeness of the Japanese military leadership 
to the regime of Nazi Germany. Increasingly on both sides, war was assumed to be inevitable. Up until 1939, the Imperial Japanese Navy took a fairly limited role in the region. Outside of its liaison office, attached to the Nanyocho Central Government in Koror on Palau Island, the Navy had no official presence in the region. It had consulted on some of those harbor expansions and improvements that I'd talked about, and on some of the improvements to airfields and communications lines made in the mid-30s, but these were always collaborative efforts with the Nanyocho, ones that had, ostensibly, civilian uses. Starting in 1939, though, the Navy dropped that pretense and began to take a direct hand in the region. In that year, the 4th Fleet, outfitted primarily for naval construction, was dispatched to Micronesia to begin a program of fortification intended to serve Japan's goals in the event of a war with the United States. What were those goals? Well, this is where we get a bit into the changing nature of war at sea at this time. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Micronesia was not actually that helpful as a base area by the standards of traditional naval doctrine before World War II. Those doctrines focused on the primacy of the battleship, which could blow away any other ship at sea with its mighty guns. To protect those battleships, the thinking went, a fortress island should have deep, easily fortified harbors to shelter and repair other ships. Those deep harbors should butt up against difficult terrain like cliffs or jungle to protect shore batteries. Thus, you could create this little fortress area from which battleships could range out, attack the enemy, and then fall back to an easily defensible base. This was the orthodoxy of the Imperial Navy, but unfortunately Micronesia was very poorly suited for it. Only truck really matched the specifications for this kind of fortification, most other islands didn't have deep enough harbors, or the terrain was just a few feet above sea level and hard to fortify. However, a different wing of the navy saw a very different kind of potential in Micronesia, thanks to the advent of a powerful new tool, naval aviation. The interwar period, as this time is called, is the time when some naval thinkers began to realize that the advent of aviation, and especially the aircraft carrier, had rendered traditional battleships kind of obsolete. All those powerful long-range guns are very impressive, and they look very badass, but none of those guns are ever going to outrange a squadron of bombers launched from a carrier. More importantly, coastal defense guns on a fortified island can control a lot less space, so to speak, than a wing of long-ranged bombers stationed on an airfield atop that island can. Adherents of the aircraft-centric approach to naval warfare, however, were on the outs in the upper levels of naval leadership. Most of the upper levels of command remained firm believers in the traditional battleship approach, which after all had been good enough to win last time Japan had fought a big naval war against Russia in 1905, so why shouldn't it be good enough now? This division on the issue of strategy combined with the fact that Japan actually did maintain its commitments against fortification in the region until pretty late in the day, meant that military preparations in Micronesia could be described as haphazard at best. Members of the Navy's aircraft faction were able to push through construction of some impressive airfields on Roy in the Kwajalein Atoll, Taroa in the Maloelap Atoll, and on the Wotje Atoll. 
truck was also fortified along the lines of a traditional fortress island. But the fortification effort was only partially complete by late 1941. The Marshall Islands, for example, were practically unfortified by that time. And then it was too late. In December of 1941, of course, Japan and the U.S. finally came to blows. Now, if you were an observer on Truk or Palau or one of the other islands of the region, your first inclination would probably be to say that the partial completion of the fortifications didn't really matter. In the months before Pearl Harbor, the Imperial Navy had moved large numbers of men, ships, and planes into the region. At the same time the Pearl Harbor attack began, those forces went into motion. An invasion force stationed in the Bonin Islands sailed on Guam. A wing of bombers stationed on Saipan made way for the Philippines. From Kwajalein Atoll, another wing of bombers set off for Wake Island, followed by an amphibious attack force. From Joliet, another amphibious attack force set off for the Gilbert Islands. In all of these efforts, success came swiftly. The only substantial resistance came from U.S. Marines on Wake Island, who held out for two weeks before surrendering. Success, simply put, seemed to be in the offing. Micronesia had served the purpose that naval thinkers going back to the 1880s had always had in mind for it, as a strategic grounds for expanding Japan's military reach in the Pacific. Except, of course, that's not quite how it all went down in the longer term. The whole assumption behind the massive surprise attack was that it would sap America's will to fight a long war. Even if it didn't, when the Americans inevitably launched a massive counterattack with their combined Pacific fleet, the Japanese could meet it and destroy it with a single blow, forcing the Americans to the peace table. Except, of course, that nothing worked out that way. The Americans didn't come to the peace table, nor did that massive combined counterattack ever come. Instead, the American fleet split up, operating in smaller divided forces to first stop the Japanese advance and then begin to push it back. And here the many problems of war preparation in Micronesia began to show themselves. First and foremost, the war itself was not only not something Micronesians themselves bought into, high-minded rhetoric about liberating Asia notwithstanding, but it actually served to perpetuate the clear gulf between themselves and their Japanese occupiers. For example, much of that pre-war rapid construction buildup was done not with Japanese labor but with Micronesians conscripted to serve in labor battalions. The Nanyocho did not have much in the way of mechanized construction equipment, though to be fair, in general Japan's construction industry was woefully under-mechanized at this point compared to the US. The only help the Imperial Navy could offer was the construction forces of the 4th Fleet, not much to cover 2,000 islands. Nor was the central government in Tokyo much help. The Justice Ministry did offer a few thousand convicts from prisons in the Tokyo area, particularly the Yokohama Central Prison. Thousands of prisoners were shipped off to the Nanyo to great celebration and fanfare complete with patriotic speeches, enjoining the convicts lined up on the docks to prove their redemption by sacrificing for the homeland. The convict labor battalions were even given a fancy name the Sekiseitai, or Sincerity Battalions. All that sincerity didn't help them much when they came to Micronesia to do forced labor building defenses and airstrips. On Tinian, 20 out of the 1,200 men assigned to work on a new airfield 
died of heat stroke. Hundreds more suffered severe health problems from the appalling conditions and severe work demands. The Nanyol Chol also relied on labor conscripted from Korea and on deals with companies like Nanyol Kohatsu that offered some of their employees for the construction process. But even this was not sufficient for the Navy's demands, and so most of the labor fell on Micronesians themselves, who were conscripted in massive numbers by the Nanyol Chol and the Navy, relocated to other regions, and forced to labor on the defenses. Sometimes conscription was done with a lighter hand. On truck, the same Mori Koben who had once upon a time fought beside local chiefs and run the small Japanese trading outpost on the island, still had quite a following and was able to convince enough young men to sign up for labor for the Nanyolchol that no one was forced to do it. But that was the exception, not the rule. In most cases, Micronesian men were simply rounded up by the police like prisoners. This did not, as you might imagine, endear them very much to Japanese rule, particularly given the many other issues of the Nanyocho we've already talked about. To use the words of Parang Nomono, a native of Truk who was conscripted to help build up the island's defenses, and who spoke to academics about the experience decades later, quote, At the time, some Japanese were bad. New Japanese replaced those of the previous government. They were our bosses and were very tough on us. They often beat us with metal or anything they had. Work got harder, just the opposite of our previous jobs. We were told to work hard because it was for the war, and if we don't, they will beat us because it's also for their Japanese leader, Tennoheka, the emperor, and that all these things or work should be accomplished. We work days and nights, unquote. His experience was not unique. Taru Onuua, another native of Truk, had a similar story to tell. Quote, we no longer had Sundays. Every day was a weekday. We didn't do our own work. We just worked for the government, clearing areas for soldiers' buildings, putting up their houses. When they came, they would check out a place, see if it was a good spot, and assign us to clear it, because that's where they were going to put up buildings for the soldiers' supplies. We were surprised when they just came and moved us from our places. We said, what's happening? Why are they doing this? asking us to make this place, but without announcing it or talking to us first. Both he and others also recalled that beyond forced labor, many were forced to give up their homes, just as Nanyo Kohatsu had done in the Marianas to build the sugarcane industry. This time, however, locals were being dispossessed to make room for new military facilities and the support staff to run them. To make matters worse, in cases where conscripts were moved from one island to another, the Japanese simply left the ones who'd been relocated on the islands rather than shipping them back home, claiming the shipping capacity was needed for war-related reasons. Many of these conscript laborers did not make their way home until the war ended half a decade later, if they did at all. There were a few Micronesians who were by this point true believers in the Japanese cause, primarily those who'd been young children at the time of the start of the occupation, and especially those who had joined the Seinendan, the young men's associations. These were some of the only successful attempts at propagandizing to Micronesians about the glorious rule of the Japanese emperor, primarily because they involved a lot of things that make young men excited, hosting social events and marching around in vaguely military uniforms singing songs. So it's not surprising that most of the Micronesians who actually volunteered for war service 
were former Seinendan participants. Many were organized into what were called volunteer detachments, or Teishintai in Japanese, led by Japanese officers, often retired military types who had served in the Nanyocho government or settled in the region. Pointedly, Teishintai members were not allowed to serve in the army or the navy. The navy never took non-Japanese sailors, and the army barely got around to taking Koreans and Taiwanese by the end of the war. Micronesians were considered too lacking in East Asian spirit to even be considered. Thus, the Teishintai were always auxiliary support units. And the history of these few groups who actually did care about the Japanese empire demonstrates, quite frankly, why so few Micronesians ever felt that way. They were treated as fundamentally disposable and unimportant. Teishintai units were deployed in 1942 and 1943 in the fighting along the southern edge of the empire at places like Rabaul and New Guinea. There they were given support duties as laborers, and often split up from each other and assigned to different Japanese units. Given that, again, if they were lucky, these men had gotten five years of Japanese language education tops, one imagines this was a somewhat isolating experience. And then, of course, there was the actual fighting, during which, despite just being laborers, Teishintai units took enormous casualties. One unit sent from Ponape to Gona in eastern Guinea lost all but three of its members. Even after the fighting, Teishintai units were treated as an afterthought. The 104th Construction Detachment, a volunteer unit sent to Guinea, was left behind when Japanese forces evacuated. Its Japanese commander killed himself, and they were abandoned on the island without any supplies. It would take the members of the 104th 10 years to arrange a way home for themselves, and to add insult to injury, none were ever paid the salaries promised to them by the army ministry as a part of their glorious labors for the empire. The war, simply put, served to alienate Micronesians even further from Japanese rule, a process, to be fair, that was already well underway by this time. And then, as the war turned worse, even more problems were created. By 1943, Japan had changed strategy once again. Now it would attempt to set up a defensive perimeter in its existing territory and hold the line in preparation for renewed offensives by 1944. Micronesia was at the forefront of the perimeter. The Navy's massive combined fleet, based on the heavily fortified island of Truk and led by the great battleship Yamato, was tasked with ensuring the Americans didn't make any headway into the empire. But the Navy leadership, it turned out, had massively misjudged the value of Micronesia as a military bastion in the Pacific. Truk was one of very few islands with substantial fortifications, and the combined fleet almost never ventured away from it, even after repeated requests that the Yamato and other battleships be dispatched to the front lines for fire support for Japanese troops. Navy leadership was too hesitant to risk its fleet for anything other than the decisive final battle, which the Americans in turn were never really willing to give them by massing up their whole fleet. So instead, the combined fleet simply sat at truck well into 1943, with the crews of its great warships focused primarily on looking spiffy in uniform and enjoying the many pleasures of shore leave, including the extension into Micronesia of Japan's native system of licensed brothels. Meanwhile, the other islands of Micronesia had their smattering of military airfields, 
but these proved less useful on defense than had been hoped. Particularly after the disastrous Battle of Midway in 1942, when Japan's navy lost several of its carriers in a decisive defeat by the United States, American forces commanded the skies. The few airplanes those Micronesian fields could muster were wiped out one at a time as Allied warplanes simply picked them off. And that's when Japanese airplanes actually could get into the sky, which proved increasingly hard to do because of another key American tactic, the use of submarines. The Imperial Navy had long neglected submarine warfare, both for itself and in terms of anti-submarine countermeasures. It was far more concerned with decisive surface engagements. The United States, by comparison, devoted a lot of time and energy to submarine warfare, and it turns out you can't get things like food and medicine to your island garrisons or airplane fuel to your remote airfields if the U.S. Navy keeps sinking all your ships. Indeed, this became a substantial problem. By the end of the war, the U.S. Navy alone had sank 58% of Japan's total merchant marine, the fleet of vessels responsible for logistics, while the Royal Navy and the various Commonwealth navies had taken down even more. Without food or gasoline or even the ability to redeploy troops to areas under threat, the island garrisons of Micronesia became less defensive bastions and more readily made target galleries for the Americans whenever they got around to it. From this point on, the history of Japanese-occupied Micronesia becomes, frankly, pretty repetitive. Once their submarine and aerial superiority was assured, the Americans began a strategy of island hopping, attacking the islands they needed as advanced outposts to push deeper into Japanese territory, and just bypassing the ones they didn't. And frankly, there was very little the Imperial Navy could do about this. Troops could not be moved to areas that were under threat because the transports kept getting torpedoed. Constant attacks on merchant shipping made it hard to get enough aviation fuel to keep even basic aerial patrols going, let alone sending aerial reinforcements to beleaguered islands or trying to win back the skies. Realistically, the strategic bastion of Micronesia was successful in delaying the American advance in the Pacific and prolonging the war, but not much more than that. Instead, the defenses of the region were slowly rolled up by the American advance, which swept west through the Gilberts, taking Tarawa and the Makin Atoll, and then the Marshalls, where they landed on Kwajalein and Aniwatok. In each case, American forces swiftly overran Japanese defenses on the Coral Atolls, whose flat nature made them hard to fortify, particularly given that American planes bombed them in advance of the landings. In many of these cases, the Americans were assisted in their knowledge of the local defenses, such as they were, by defections of Micronesian laborers. Japanese records make regular references to the rachi or kidnapping of Micronesians by Americans, but it's pretty clear these were voluntary abductions, so to speak. Which, after all, makes sense, one has to imagine that a Micronesian dragged off to the opposite end of the islands to do forced labor, under grueling conditions digging up anti-tank trenches or laying down razor wire or what have you, would not feel much in the way of burning loyalty to the empire that sent him there. Particularly as the war situation got worse, tensions between the imperial military, which by this point had functionally shut down the Nanyocho and declared martial law, and the locals grew worse. 
The Navy commanders on the scene, and eventually the Army ones sent to reinforce them, commandeered everything they saw as necessary for the defense of the area, without much in the way of sensitivity to the needs of Micronesians themselves. The locals were often given lower priority for food, water, and medicine when these were available at all, and tempers ran high as a result. Several Japanese garrison commanders seemed to have unilaterally executed Micronesians they suspected of betraying the cause, either by talking to the Americans or taking supplies they needed to live, or simply for insufficient zeal. It's hard to get a sense of how many died, though, given the lack of documentation and the wholesale destruction of records at the end of the war by Japanese commanders hoping to avoid prosecution. That's not to say, though, that Americans were welcomed with open arms by the Micronesian population. In pretty much every theater of war in World War II, the United States followed a doctrine of massive firepower. Basically, the Americans used a superior industrial base to build a boatload of bombs, artillery shells, and the like, and just blast the hell out of a place before they attacked it. This certainly did clear a path for American troops, but it also resulted in a lot of casualties among Micronesians caught in the crossfire. Chris Perez Howard, a native of Guam born in 1940, the son of an American father and a Guamanian Chamorro mother, described the results in his novel, Mariquita, A Tragedy of Guam. Quote, The sadness I feel for those who suffered injustice at the hands of the Japanese is deep, but I do not hate. The wanton bombing of the island by the Americans, especially the city of Agana, which had to be bulldozed to restore any semblance of order to such an extent that the old Spanish bridge now only points to where a river once existed, is equally unjust. Similarly, here's the recollection of Ichios Ias, a native of Truk. Quote, but what I remember most from the war, the hardship, the life, the difficulties we faced during the war, is being scared the Japanese being harsh or cruel, of starving and suffering. I don't understand why we had to do that, why we had to go through that. It wasn't us going to war. But when I think back, that's what I remember the most, especially the bombs. When the noise coming from the war was so loud, we could hear it on another island. Not only that, but those things that light up the sky or the whole island, it was like daylight during the nighttime. You could see everything. Where were we going to run to? Where were we going to hide? The Americans lit up the whole island, even the dark and in the forest, and we could see each other as though it was daytime. Early in the war, there were attempts to evacuate Japanese subjects from Micronesia and away from the fighting, but these proved both haphazard and fraught, with plenty of danger given the nature of American submarine warfare in the Pacific. For example, at the start of the war, there were about 43,000 Japanese civilians in the Marianas Islands. By the start of 1944, that number was down to about 20,000, but attempts to continue the evacuation proved challenging. One convoy of evacuees in March of 1944 had not even left the site of Saipan itself before coming under submarine attack and losing three ships. Ultimately, this was how Japanese rule in Micronesia came apart. Slowly, but given the military situation, inevitably, the signs of Japanese presence began to vanish. Truk, the great fortress island that was sometimes described as the Gibraltar of the Pacific, was blasted to smithereens by Allied bombers in Operation Hailstone. The Allies never even bothered occupying the island itself. 
Koror on the island of Palau, once home to the Nanyocho government offices, was rendered uninhabitable by Allied bombs in advance of an American move into the region in fall of 1944. The tattered remains of the Nanyocho leadership, by this point little more than an appendage to the military government of the area, were relocated to a milik on the west end of the island, but functionally there was little for them to do. The islands of Saipan and Tinian, once the beating hearts of the Japanese economic presence in the area, were reduced to smoking ruins, the great sugarcane fields burned to the ground. The war, of course, finally ended in 1945, with the Nanyo consisting of nothing more than islands which had either fallen to the Americans or housed starving garrisons cut off from the homeland. It took until December of 1947 to ship all the Japanese in the area still remaining at war's end back home. Today, there's not much left in terms of physical remnants of the Japanese presence in Micronesia. Much of the infrastructure built in those days was blown to pieces by the Americans. What survived, like the Shinto shrine on Koror, was taken down to help rebuild the islands. Today, the Nanyo area is home to a host of different countries, like Kiribati, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia, and of course to U.S. territories like Guam. But Japan is not gone from the region. Starting in the 1970s and with support of businessmen who'd operated on the islands 30 years earlier, Japanese economic interests began to return to the area. These days, it's mostly tourism, though fishing also remains big business, and the Federated States of Micronesia specifically gets a good deal of money from Japan in overseas development aid. There are other more visible remnants of the old relationship as well, in the form of Micronesians with Japanese ancestry, including the children of men like Mori Koben, who remained on truck until his death just a week after the end of World War II. The first president of the Federated States of Micronesia, for example, was Tosiwo Nakayama, who, as the last name gives away, had a Japanese father. So ultimately, what can we make of this interlude in Japanese history? Well, in a lot of ways, I think the Nanyo highlights both the distinctive ideologies of Japanese imperialism, its Pan-Asian rhetoric, its emphasis on Japanese racial superiority, its militaristic justification, and the fundamental contradictions of those ideas. Just as much, maybe even more so than in Korea and Taiwan, the rhetoric that Japan was in Micronesia to help was so completely belied by actual policy, which was clearly intended to reduce Micronesians to dependent appendages of the empire. It's an important reminder, simply put, never to unquestioningly accept the rhetoric of colonialism. Otherwise, we risk replicating the same viewpoints that justified empires like this in the first place. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com. You can support the network at patreon.com slash facingbackward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prime, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jared Stevens, Jerry Spinrad, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, 
A house is a perfectly cromulent mascot, and the fish I catch are Rhodes Scholars, compared to Samuel Alito, schmuck. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time for something very different, a deep dive into a fascinating source from the 1200s, the Moko Shurai Ekotoba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.